Amen. Wow. And he shall reign forever. I actually thought I might lose my voice on that last one. That's so awesome. And you know, there's a sense in which that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks as we pick it up again today. We're talking about a God who reigns forever. And that doesn't, by the way, mean He's going to reign someday in the future. That's true. He will. It means He reigns now and forevermore will reign. Now, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the providence of God, and I've said repeatedly, look, the providence of God is this idea that God did not simply create the heavens and the earth and everyone and everything in them, including all of us and everything that happens in our lives, and then wound it up like a clock and turned it loose like some kind of a grand experiment to then see what would happen next. To watch, you know, and, and to observe and to kind of sit back and to take in and to see how it is that everything and everyone sort of came together so that in the final analysis, you know, to just kind of figure out what sort of a picture we might all create, but instead... The providence of God is the idea that God started with the picture in mind. That God decided in eternity past what He wants us to forever and ever see when all of history is done. And that in light of His picture, He then created the heavens and the earth and everyone and everything in it, like so many pieces to a giant jigsaw puzzle. And then having created it, He stepped into His creation and not passively, but sovereignly, actively took over even the minutest details of every single one of our lives. And the Lord God reigns and He reigns now and forever. And He evermore lives to sovereignly direct and to sovereignly guide and to sovereignly govern over and to sovereignly bring all of these little puzzle pieces together in such a way as to create this big picture. That in the end, we're all going to see and understand our lives, which are little bitty pieces of that big picture in light of. And even though they're little bitty, they're precious. You know, I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have put together a giant jigsaw puzzle. I told you my woes in that regard a few weeks ago. I don't like to do it, but I like it even less when I get two weeks into the deal and I get all the way to the end and there's one piece missing. Has that ever happened to you? It's tremendously disconcerting, right? Particularly if you got to finish something like me. I mean, you end up drawing something and sticking it in. I mean, you got to fix it. Okay, but here's the thing. Your piece and the picture is not complete without you. It's amazing. So anyway, we've talked about that every week, and every week then we've gone to the story of this amazing man whose name is Joseph. And we've seen how it is that his life and God, through his life, shows us all of this stuff. And it's been so cool. I mean, we saw that Joseph, in the providence of God, do you hear that? In the providence of this God who guides even the minutest details of our lives, you got to swallow that twice sometimes, don't you? That's not always easy. And through no fault of his own, is born into this unbelievably dysfunctional family for reasons that most of us who know the story of Joseph are kind of cool with now because we see it. We've beheld the whole story, a lot of us. Some of you don't know what's coming, and so you're kind of like, you know, suspenseful, and, and that's great. A lot of us have studied this story. We saw it in flannel graph as a kid, you know. We grow up, we know what's coming, and so we're all relaxed as we're traveling through this story. And here's Joseph, and he's in this dysfunctional family, and we're like, ah, don't worry about it, because then this is what happens, and then this is what happens, and then this is what happens. But here's how it all ends. We know, because we have this story, how his little puzzle piece fits in the big picture and all of a sudden makes sense. But Joseph didn't know that. 
As he's suffering the dysfunction of his family, he doesn't see that. He doesn't have that perspective. And in that, we can relate, can't we? Because we can't see past the edges of our puzzle piece either. But God is showing us through this story how he works. So anyway, Joseph's born into this incredibly dysfunctional family. He's one of the last sons born to this man named Jacob. And yet Jacob takes this son and says, okay, this is my favorite boy because he's the son of my favorite wife. All right? And he designates his favoritism, his heirship, his governance over all of the family by giving him the multicolored coat. You know the deal. We've covered it. He takes this child, though he is one of the youngest, and he elevates him above all of his brothers. Here's the flow chart in the house of Jacob. Jacob, Joseph, everyone and everything else. And his brothers despise and hate him. Then he tattles on them and they hate him all the more. And then God comes to Joseph and he gives him these dreams, these prophetic revelations in which God is coming and he's saying, listen, Joseph and all of the rest of you in this family, here's the deal. This is what's going to happen someday in the future. Joseph, stand up. This is going to be great. Joseph, you're going to be standing and all of your brothers are going to be bowing at your feet. Hang on to that. Two dreams, one message. And that's the message. And so his brothers decide to kill him, and they take him, and they strip him, and they throw him in a pit. They peel off that multicolored coat that represented his authority, his favoritism. They so resented and hated that. And then they sat around eating lunch trying to figure out what to do. Do we kill him? How do we kill him? Do we just leave him here to die? And here come the spice traders, you'll recall. And they figure, hey, you know what? We can make a buck on him, send him down to Egypt, and he'll die there. Win-win. So they pull him up. They sell him for silver. And there goes Joseph down to Egypt where he sold as a slave to a wealthy Egyptian official named Potiphar. And I promise you, not one thing inside the edges of his puzzle piece was making any sense at all to him. We're all relaxed because, like, you know, we know where it's going. Don't relax. Identify with this guy. Feel with him. He goes down to Egypt. His brothers go home with his special coat dipped in blood. They show it to dad. Dad thinks that he's dead. He's not dead, but he's in the land of the dead. He's down in Egypt where all the mummies come from. And he's in the household of Potiphar. And things, you know, start looking up a little bit for Joseph because we read that the Lord was with Joseph in the household of Potiphar, which, by the way, means that God does not spare Joseph, does not spare me, and will not spare you of all suffering in this life. But He will be with you. And there's great value to that. So the Lord prospers Joseph in the house of Potiphar. This God who governs over even the most minute details of our life ordains that he have success. That's where success comes from, as an aside. And Potiphar realizes everything this kid touches turns to gold. He takes this kid and he creates a new flowchart for the whole house. It's going to sound familiar. It goes like this. It was Jacob, remember, Joseph and everybody and everything else. Now it's Potiphar and Joseph and everything and everybody else. He puts everything under Joseph's charge. Things are looking up for Joseph. Life for a little while at least seemed to be going well for him, at least as a slave. And then Mrs. Potiphar takes a liking to him and you know the rest. She comes on to him day after day after day after day and day after day after day. He refuses, he refuses, he refuses. She sets the trap and waits for him, sends out all the servants and literally grabs his coat, which is a major key to this story. 
I'm telling you, every time something happens with this guy's clothes, you know, it's a big deal. And he leaves his coat behind. And he runs from temptation. What a guy. And she does the same thing with his coat that his brothers had done with his multicolored tunic. She uses it, in a sense, as evidence against him. She says, you know what? He tried to rape me. See, I've got his coat. And Joseph, feel it now for doing the right thing. For doing the right thing is thrown into another pit. It's the same word. But this time, it's the pit of the palace dungeon of Pharaoh. It's the place where Pharaoh throws all of the people that he wants to throw into jail. And here's the deal. A lot of us know the story, so we're not stressing over this. But he didn't know the story. He lived it, just like I live it, just like you live it. We can't see outside the edges of the puzzle piece of our lives any better than he could. And as with Joseph, God does not show up in the midst of our pits to explain it to us. He doesn't show up in the pit, you know, when his brothers throw him in. He doesn't show up in the caravan on the way down to Egypt. He doesn't show up in the dysfunction of his father's house. He doesn't show up here in Potiphar's house. He doesn't show up now in the pit of Pharaoh's dungeon to kind of say, well, look, Joseph, don't stress out about this because here's how your puzzle piece fits in the big picture. And now you can see how it all sort of makes sense and everything's going to work out. And actually, this is good. And this is part of my plan and none of that. And he's not there for a couple days, weeks, months, or even just a couple of years. This guy is there for years and years. When we pick up our story today, it's been 11 years since he had his dreams. And absolutely everything that has happened in his life since he had these dreams, from his perspective, makes it less and less possible that those dreams will ever be fulfilled. I mean, my goodness, his brothers are back in Canaan living large. And he's in the pit of, well, Pharaoh's dungeon. Hang on to that. And yet God does for Joseph what he does for us. He's with us, but he calls us to trust him. He doesn't explain it, but he comes and says, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is my nature. This is my character. This is the demonstration and manifestation of my love for you. I have given my son. I've withheld no good thing from you. And I am the master puzzle builder. I am not limited by your imaginations and what you can figure out and speculate and hypothesize about. And I am working all this together for good. And in the end, when you see how it fits, man, you're really going to sing. So trust and have faith in me. And do you know how he inspires that faith in us? By giving us stories like this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He gives us stories like this so we can see how he works. And we too, like Joseph, can hang on in the tough times and even rejoice knowing that he's doing great things. So anyway, with all that in mind, we pick up the story this morning in Genesis 39, beginning in verse 21, where we read this, it says, and it's a very familiar refrain, but the Lord, here it is, was with Joseph. Again, he doesn't spare Joseph of the pit, but he's with him there, and he even manifests his presence in some sense. And I wonder sometimes when we're in the pits, if God isn't going, hey, I'm here in some kind of a way. And we miss it. 
I don't think Joseph missed it. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness. It's a covenantal term. It means literally that he showed him love and loyalty in his time of need. He extended kindness to him. And here's how he did it. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Get this, because it's a familiar flowchart. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. Jacob, Joseph, everybody else. Potiphar, Joseph, everybody else. Chief jailer, Joseph, everybody else. Joseph is running the prison in which he himself is held captive. That's pretty cool. And he has so much authority that Moses, who writes the story for us, says so that whatever was done there, Joseph was responsible for it. The chief jailer, get this, did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. And then, of course, if you know the rest of the story, you know that Joseph interprets this as a sign from God. Clearly, God gave him the keys to the prison. Clearly, God turned him loose with no supervision. Clearly, God orchestrated all of these circumstances so that he, Joseph, could sneak out one night. And so then he carefully orchestrated his this great escape, you know. And one night under the cloak of darkness, he snuck away. And they didn't even know he was gone until he was halfway back to dad's home in Canaan. And then he beat up his brothers. And that's the end of the story. No. Sounded good, though, didn't it? You know, the truth is, that's what I'd like to do. And that's what you would want to do under this circumstance? It's not what Joseph does. You know, he doesn't look at the keys and go, well, God gave me these keys so that I can betray the trust of this man who has trusted me implicitly and in betraying his trust. Defame the name of the God that has so clearly favored me that I'm in this position. And who I cling to even in the pit. I think Joseph understands that God gave him those keys as a means of saying to Joseph, hey, bud, I know where you're at. Hey, guess what? I know what's happening in your life. Oh, by the way, I'm in charge of all this deal. I mean, you may have noticed, you're the prisoner. And I mean, just rattle the keys once for me, okay? Because it's really cool. You're in charge of the prison that you're held captive in. It's extraordinary. That's a only God can do it thing. Look for those things. In large and small ways, little glimpses here and there, they're there in grace. So Joseph doesn't take the keys and use them the way that I would like to use them. He doesn't commit a wrong in order to correct some of the wrongs that have been done to him. And we do that all the time. We're wronged, we're wronged, we're wronged, we're wronged. We keep a very careful record of our wrongs, don't we? All of us. And what every wrong has cost. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the providence of God, in a position where if we committed a wrong, maybe even against somebody who wronged us, we could set the record straight just a little bit. We could recollect, if you will, at least some of what's been taken not Joseph. Joseph understands what every one of our mothers used to say. Two wrongs don't make a right. Doesn't it just give you chills to hear it? It's like, oh, it's the fingernails on the chalkboard. Yeah, well, it's right. And so Joseph refuses to betray the confidence of the jailer. He refuses to take matters into his own hands. He refuses to rely upon himself to deliver himself from these circumstances. 
He refuses to compromise his ethics and his integrity. And the glory of the God that he lives for, he speaks of this God. You'll hear it today. The man's evangelistic. He refuses to do those things. And he instead sits in the pit, trusting somehow against all odds and beyond all imagination, at least as it lies within him, that this God who promises that he's at work outside the edges of this puzzle piece is going to deliver him, even though it's looked less and less likely with every passing day. And so then one day within the ordinary course of business, at least from uh, Joseph's perspective, but within the providence of God, Pharaoh sends down two new prisoners. He sends down his chief cupbearer. He sends down his chief baker. I realize those sound like menial positions. You got a picture of a guy with a cup on a tray or something. Those are high cabinet level positions. These are very influential, powerful men that somehow have found the disfavor of Pharaoh and landed in the dungeon that Joseph cares for. And one morning, Joseph notices that these guys are, you know, looking kind of down. And so he says, well, what's the deal? And they said, well, here's the thing. Each one of us last night had a dream, and it was a prophetic revelation kind of dream. It was a vision from God dream. We know that. We just have no idea what it means. And down here in this pit, we're cut off from all of the dream interpreters, from all of the wise men of Egypt and of Pharaoh. And so we feel like God has communicated something to each of us about what's coming, and we have nobody to tell us what that is. And Joseph says, well, you're right about that because, man, you know, 11 years ago, I had these two dreams, actually just one message, but two different dreams. And I thought that God had given me the gift of interpretation, and I thought I knew exactly what it meant. And it was me standing, brothers bowing. But as it is, brothers are back in Canaan, living large. And so far, I've been sold and here and now, now I'm in the pit. And here's the whole story. And I'm pretty sure that I must have been wrong about that. That's not what he does. Genesis 40, verse 8, he says, do not interpretations belong to this God that I take advantage of every opportunity that I have to speak of. And then he says, tell it to me, please, he says. Well, why does he say that? Because he still believes in his ability, his God-given gift and ability to rightly interpret prophetic visions and dreams, which means parenthetically that he still believes that one day he'll be standing. And his brothers will be bowing at his feet. This is a man who believes in the providence of God, and Moses has written up this story, and God has preserved and given it to us by the power of his Holy Spirit that we might believe likewise. That's the point. So these guys tell Joseph their dreams, and Joseph says, well, you know, here's the deal. I have some good news, and uh, I have some bad news. Let's start with you, Mr. Cupbearer, because we all like good news, and the good news really is pretty much entirely centered on you. Here's what your dream means. In three days, all will be well. In three days, everything will be forgiven. In three days, Pharaoh's going to call you up out of this pit, and he's going to wash it clean. He's going to make it like it never happened. He's going to restore you to his or to your former uh, post, and it's going to be awesome. Three more days, and you're a free man. And now for the bad news. Um, Okay, Mr. Baker, here's the deal. I'm just going to rip it off like a Band-Aid, okay? I'm just going to give it to you straight. It's going to come fast and furiously. You're not going to need to take notes. It's going to be memorable. In three days, Pharaoh, well, he's going to cut your head off and pale you on a pole, and the birds are going to sweep in and eat your dead body. Oh, look at the time. That's it. That's the whole dream. And then in a moment of weakness, He's fallible, this man. He pulls aside the cupbearer, and he says, Look, bud, 
I really shouldn't be here. Let me tell you my story of how I got here. I'm being unjustly held here. And when you get back in the good graces of Pharaoh, would you remember me? Do you hear that word, remember? That's a covenantal word. That is a word that everywhere in the Old Testament speaks of the kind of remembrance and the kind of deliverance that only God can bring. In other words, it seems at least like Joseph, for a moment, asked this man to give him the kind of remembrance and deliverance that only God can bring. And do you know what God does? Because it's painful. He leaves him there for two more years. You know, you got to pause in these stories and go, where does this apply to my life? And I think that we can identify with Joseph here too. You know, I think oftentimes we look to people to do for us what only God can do. We look to our parents to give us the kind of love that really ultimately only God is capable of and that God has designed our hearts to receive from Him. Or we look to our husband or wife for the kind of satisfaction, you know, and happiness that, you know, in reality, only God can bring and, and only God can give. We, we look to our kids for joy and, and hope and you find out that they're little sinners just like us. And that only God can bring that. We look to our coworkers and those people in our little, you know, area of excellence, if you will, to puff us up and to give us dignity and to, you know, communicate value to us, the kind of value that only God can actually generate in our hearts. You know what God does? He leaves us there for a little while longer. He exposes the reality that, you know what, we're supposed to go to him with these things. See, Joseph looks to this guy for the kind of remembering and deliverance that only God can bring and to his connections with Pharaoh. And, you know, he's working it, man. And I understand that. I totally can sympathize with that. But God leaves him in prison then two more years. He ordains that he be completely forgotten there until his faith in man dies. And once it's dead, then God sends two dreams with one message, sounds familiar, doesn't it? To Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Pharaoh wakes up in the morning and he's all jacked up about his dreams. He understands these are prophetic revelations from God telling him what's coming in the future. He just doesn't know what they mean. And so he calls together all his wise men and dream interpreter guys, you know, and nobody can answer it. And suddenly the cupbearer has this aha moment. And he says to Pharaoh, listen, you know, I hate to bring this up, but do you remember when you threw me in the prison thing? And I'm so glad, by the way, that the whole impaling, that you didn't do that to me. And that was really awkward. But there was a guy there, and we both, the baker and I, had these dreams, and he interpreted them, and it came to pass exactly the way he said it would. He's downstairs. Pretty sure he's still there since I've left him there. And so they call Joseph up, and they clean him up, you know, they shave his beard, they shave his head, just as an aside. Egyptians are clean-shaven. And they give him new clothes. So you know something's going to happen, okay? And they bring him in before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, you know, I hear that you have the ability to interpret dreams, 
And in Genesis 41, 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh, and I, I just, I love what he says. He says, it is not in me. This guy is so impressive. I'm overwhelmed and humbled by this man. Stunning. He is so incredibly opportunistic, but not for himself and notwithstanding the consequences. I mean, opportunistic for Joseph would have been, you darn right I can interpret dreams. Absolutely, I can do it. I, I mean, you know, and by the way, might just a little reminder for you, Pharaoh, you just experienced this. None of these other guys can, apparently, otherwise you wouldn't have me here. And oh, I mean, shouldn't I therefore not be in some pit somewhere, you know, suffering away? Does not a guy with my value deserve a place at least above the ground? Yes, I can do it. It's not what he does. He throws all of that aside. He cares less about his comfort, his circumstances, his wealth, position, power, influence, or lack thereof than he does about giving glory to God before this most powerful man. It says, then Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me, it's not me. He's pointing away from himself. And he says, God, however, will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. God's going to give you the answer. He's going to bring you peace here, bud. You're not going to have to look any further. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. And Joseph tells him what they mean. There's good news and bad news. There's really a lot of patterns in this story. All right, so the good news, the two dreams are actually one, kind of like my dream. Pharaoh's like, yeah, I kind of figured that's why these other guys were disqualified. But but they mean this, good news. Next seven years, abundance like you've never seen in this land. Never, ever. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be unbelievable. But then here's the bad news. After those seven years of abundance are over, there will be seven years of famine such as has never been seen in this land. And a collective gasp went up in the throne room of Pharaoh. Because you can survive a year of famine, maybe two years, possibly three, seven. There's not much of a kingdom left at that point. I mean, it is a death sentence. It's not a small problem. It's monumental. And then this guy, Joseph, who all he's been asked to do is interpret the dream, but he is an administrative genius by the gifting of God. All that we have comes from him. Dares, having stated the problem, to state also the solution. And I want to read it to you because this is kind of cool. It's sort of where we see his life, at least in large part, getting plugged into the big picture. Verse 33 of chapter 41, Joseph continues, he says, Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. So let me give you the flow chart, Pharaoh. It's going to be you and then this guy and then everybody else. Does that sound familiar? And let Pharaoh take action to then appoint overseers in charge of the land. We're going to divide it up into districts, okay, and put people over all of these districts who, by the way, are underneath the guy that's right under you. So you, this guy that you need to appoint, and then all these overseers under him. And let him, this wise and discerning man, exact, and Pharaoh exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. So great will be these seven years that if we can just store up 20% of the produce... We can survive the famine, and not just us, but the whole region will survive. And then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority. He's going to urbanize Egypt. People are going to be coming off of the farms because there's nothing growing there. 
and into the cities where these storage centers are. And Pharaoh's a pretty savvy businessman, by the way. He understands that there are going to be seven years of famine for everybody but him. At the end of the seven years, Pharaoh will own everything and everyone, for you'll give anything to stay alive. And who, by the way, is controlling the food in Joseph's plan? You see the brilliance of this? It's amazing. Very appealing to Pharaoh. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them, meaning Pharaoh and these people that you appoint, guard it and let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. And then we read this, and this, by the way, is the remembering that only God can do. This is the kind of deliverance that only God can bring. Now, the proposal, it says, seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. It's like there's immediate consensus. Have you ever seen that in any kind of a political environment? Oh, yeah, well, let's do that. Okay. I mean, it's Solomonic in terms of its wisdom. It's one of those deals that you look at and go, yeah, absolutely. And then Pharaoh said to his servants, and it's really not a question, it's more or less a statement, Can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, in whom he sees the spirit of the Lord, since God, who you're telling me about, has informed you of all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. And even though I just called you up out of prison, and even though presumably since you were in prison, you must have, I guess, been a criminal, and even though I haven't run any kind of a fingerprinting background check on you, and even though we haven't even checked your references, um, you shall be over my house." Not my garden, but the house of the entire nation. The flow chart, Joseph, goes like this. It's, it's me, Pharaoh, and then right below me, it's you, and then, well, it's, it's everybody else. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all of my people shall do homage only, and the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see... I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And just like that, this guy that was a prisoner, I don't know, what, 45 minutes ago, whatever, is now the prime minister of Egypt. And so you know he's going to get a new wardrobe, right? And it's going to be sweet. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring, representing his authority from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him, there it is, in garments of fine linen, and put the gold necklace. The word actually is a gold collar. You've, you've seen these in Egyptian displays and, and so forth, haven't you? You've seen like the big, fat gold necklace. Mr. T would have been incredibly jealous. <laughs> he put the gold collar around his neck, and he had him ride in the second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And they set him over all the land of Egypt. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, listen, I'm really excited about this new position and I plan to get right to work. I've already told you of the plan, so I'm going to go about administrating that. But at first, I just need to tie up just one or two or maybe three personal details that I've really been waiting to kind of get to. And so he sent some soldiers down to the land of Canaan to gather up his brothers, to torture, to abuse, to humiliate, to imprison for a while, and then to execute. And then he sent another kind of cohort of soldiers over to the house of Potiphar to grab him, but particularly his wife, and to kind of torture and to imprison and to humiliate and, and ultimately to do away with them. And he personally grabbed the cupbearer right there by the throat. 
because he had left him there for two years. He did absolutely none of those things, none of them. This guy just went straight to work. Why? Well, I think at least part of the answer to that is that he saw how his little puzzle piece fit in the picture. And all of a sudden, even these admittedly unbearably wicked things that had been done upon him and all of the hurts and all of the pain and all the struggles and all the whys and all the questions and all of the years, 13 years if you're counting thus far, made sense. And that doesn't change the fact that they had done wicked things, but he sees how God has taken every one of those little things from the dysfunction of his household all the way to being left by the cupbearer for those last two years to get him to where he is, to position him, to prepare him for the mission of saving people. And that solves a lot of things right there, doesn't it? And I think that lets him begin to unload some things, to unload some bitterness, to unload some resentment, to unload some anger, to unload some hatred, to unload all kinds of the crud that you and I store up in our hearts. And it will allow him, as we're going to see, to be gracious and forgiving toward his brother. He's going to test his brother's. He's going to see very wisely if they have indeed changed, if they are indeed repentant, but his mindset toward his family is restoration and reconciliation. He's quite a guy. And here's the thing, God has given us this story, hasn't He? And I think in part He gives us this story so that we can do the same thing without first having to see how our lives fit in the puzzle, just knowing that they do. Because God and His inspired Word has taught us so. And we don't have to carry all that stuff around either. It's very liberating. So Joseph doesn't throw himself into the mission of revenge. He throws himself into the mission of saving people. Which means, by the way, that this story speaks not only to those of us in the pit, but it speaks to those of us in the palace because he occupies both places. All of a sudden, he's a wealthy man. He's a powerful man. He has prestige. He has all of this stuff. It's unbelievable. How is he going to use it? Well, he's going to use it in the mission of saving people, which, by the way, is our mission too, spiritually and in many cases physically. The God who ordains even the minutest details of our lives gives us things that we might throw them into his mission. And Joseph stores up food for seven years, and the seven years of famine come, and we'll pick it up again next week there. But first, let me ask you a couple questions. Number one, where is it that you're trying to get two wrongs to make a right in your life? You're justifying this behavior based on things that have been done to you. Secondly, who in your life are you trying to get something out of that, you know, really only God can give? A husband, a wife, a child, a co-worker? What hurt and anger and resentment do you need to unload knowing that God is using all things for His glory and good? And when it fits in the puzzle in the end, you'll see how it all makes sense. Who do you need to extend grace and forgiveness to? And lastly, what place does the mission of God occupy in your life? Because this guy went from nothing to everything and right into the mission. It's why he was given everything in the first place. Okay? Think about those things, and we'll pick it up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
uh, for the glory that we see, which is yours, as we come to stories like this in your word. Um, Lord, we praise and thank you for the life of this man, Joseph, which you inspired, which you enabled, which you yourself gave him the faith to lead, and which is extraordinary in more ways than we can see even and articulate. God, we thank you that it gives us a peek and gives us the ability to see how you work, how you move outside the edges of the puzzle piece, not just of Joseph's life, but of my life, of all of our lives in ways that make sense of everything we see inside of it, which admittedly is oftentimes painful and confusing. Father, we entrust to you those little puzzle pieces and pray that you would give us the same grace that you gave to this man. Reveal your presence with us in ways that we can see in the pits of life. And give us the grace to be obedient and uncompromising, clinging to you even when clinging to you from what we can see makes no sense. Lord, whether we're in the pit or the palace this morning, I pray that you would impress upon us your value, your worth, and God, your mission, that we might most effectively live for you and bring you glory. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.